a lot of the retail partners that we work with, they don't anticipate that they'll sort of make back the lost gains for many years to come. It's just been taking such a toll on them. But at the same time, I think what we're going to see, particularly coming into the holidays, is that there's going to be this huge pent-up consumer demand where all of those individuals who you know re- retained employment and haven't been able to spend, whether it's on holidays or on going out or shopping in a physical store, whatever it might be, I think you're going to start to see some of that pent-up demand start to flow through the economy as we move into the holiday period. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey, everyone. We have a great episode lined up for you today featuring David Sykes of Klarna. And you may have seen Klarna's name around the web, or you may have seen their unavoidable hot pink branding. But I really want to dig into the evolution of the brand from B2B payment company to end-to-end brand experience for consumers. It's a very big shift and a fascinating one. And David and I get into it all, why the shift was needed, the role of virtual events and partnerships, and how the brand is not just partnering with brands, but also consumers to really transform the perception of payment in and of itself and really afford users the flexibility, the transparency that they need in these tough times. So if you're interested in learning more about the Klarna story or if you're looking for some hot takes and ideas of how to improve your payment experience, this episode is for you. David, thanks so much for taking the time. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to join. So first, let's start with the basics. Why don't you introduce yourself and share a little bit about the work that you do with Klarna? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So my name is David Sykes. I lead Klarna's US business. I've been in the role for about nine months now. And effectively, my main focus on any given day is in particular leading the sort of the commercial teams and the B2B marketing teams and, and our relationship with our sort of almost 5,000 retailers here in the US. Excellent. And Klarna has been making some big moves, some really exciting headlines and developments coming out of the company. So definitely want to get into those today. But let's start at the ground level, so to speak. For those who don't know Klarna, why don't you provide a boilerplate, so to speak, around the business and your overall goals, especially through the lens of retail? Yeah. So look, when I describe Klarna, we're a fintech and we're we're Europe's largest private fintech. But really, I think that the aspiration for Klarna is a little broader than that. When I think about Klarna, we really want to sit at the intersection of retail and payments and banking and really influence and and make smoother all of those activities. So the company was founded in um, Sweden about 15 years ago with really the goal of just making shopping easier or shopping smoother. Since then, we've grown to be live in about 17 different countries, about to add another couple of countries to that list. We work with about 200,000 retailers around the world, including the likes of H&M and Ikea and Expedia and Samsung and Nike and Abercrombie and Fitch. 
We work with uh, 85 million customers around the world. So really large global presence. And recently we were just listed number five on the 2020 CNBC top 50 disruptors list. So I'm really focused on how we improve that shopping experience, that payment experience. And, and you know, we, we see those two experiences as combined. You know, they're not, they're not separate, uh, separate experiences. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I honestly, I really wanted to have uh, Klarna on the show to really talk about this evolution because I really think it's fascinating. B2B fintech in and of itself is experiencing some really fantastic innovations, really great improvements to make the payment process more seamless, a bit more aligned to how we interact with businesses and technology in our day-to-day. So some really fantastic things happening there. But Klarna is really taking that a step further for not just retail partners, you know, enabling more payment options, making it smoother, as you say, but also bringing more payment options and flexibility, accessibility to consumers. And and the brand is, is really transforming, right? Almost into like an end-to-end shopping service and experience for consumers. So I guess let's dig deeper into that evolution and, and why this shift or improvement was necessary. Because I mean, just looking at the payment space in general, it has experienced so much change and so much innovation. So how does this coincide with where Klarna was meant to be or where you guys wanted the business to go overall? It's a great question. And I think, in fairness, when Klarna started, the ambition was really simple. The ambition was to be a B2B payments company. And I think that what happened in payments is, you know, PayPal just lays this incredible sort of like um, trail that, you know, everybody who came after, you know, saw the ambition, which was be like PayPal, be at the checkout of every retailer. And, and I think that was probably probably Kalana's early ambition, uh, but it evolved. And I think the reason it evolved for us was we realized that what happens after the checkout is just as important. The consumer journey, the consumer experience doesn't stop when you click into your payment details. It continues on past that. And we realized that we had an, an enormous ability to influence what happens after the checkout in a really positive way, influence in a positive way for the consumers who use Klarna, but also influence in a positive way for the retail partners that we have. So we now view ourselves not not just as a payments company, we view ourselves as a shopping company. And our ambition is to improve shopping, to make shopping easier. And that's across the entire user experience. So from discovery and delight all the way through to conversion and then post that conversion experience. It's about making sure that all of those touch points are providing customers with value and flexibility. And we've had a lot of success with that. So, you know, what we sort of view all of these components as complementary. So in the US, you can see us at the checkout on Sephora and on North Face and on Timberland and Adidas and Abercrombie and Fitch and Ticketmaster and a bunch of really great retailers. We're there, just like PayPal, just like, you know, pay with a Visa or MasterCard. But that's not where the journey finishes. And I think an early challenge that we had was a customer would discover us on Sephora and they'd really like that experience. And then they'd go onto Amazon or they'd go onto Walmart and we weren't there. So, you know, the sort of the experience stopped. And we realized very early on that we wanted to be able to transcend the retail partnership, almost campaign directly to the consumer and give them the options to shop with Klarna anywhere. So we built our app, which basically gives a consumer the ability to go onto any website in the US, make a transaction with Klarna. We then really wanted to build on that experience. So, you know, not not just let a customer make a payment with Klarna, you know, we now let a customer 
track a package with Klarna. We let them wishlist and share wishlisted items with Klarna. We let them register for price drop notifications, you know, a whole heap of other components that are sort of complementary to that core shopping experience. And what's really interesting is that when we started to overlay these experiences, we saw the way in which consumers were engaging with our products, you know, just transform. We have now about 1.2 million monthly active users of our app in the US. And on average, they're spending seven minutes a session. And it's just a totally different way of interacting with the Kleiner app than, say, you know, an American Express app or your city app. And that's because of where, of this shopping experience that we're providing. That's fascinating. So that pivot to being more utility-based, so that last stop, so to speak, in the shopping journey to an end-to-end integral experience for the consumer. I mean, that's significant, I think, from a business perspective, but especially from a brand and marketing and messaging perspective. So what kind of pivots were required for Klarna? I mean, I guess the the retail side is one thing, like the retail and brand partners, but uh, also from the consumer side, right? Because, I mean, looking at your app usage, I mean, those are significant numbers. So what has been most effective for getting this buy-in from the consumer standpoint when, I mean, just looking at apps specifically, engagement rates on mobile apps have been such a big issue? And, And you don't have to go into mobile specifically, but I guess... I'm curious about just that brand image and that messaging shift that you had to undergo in order to be successful with this shift. Yeah, we, we, we had to think about it a lot, right? We decided a little while ago that we didn't want to appear as just another payments company or another bank. In fact, I think there's a lot of research that shows that young people in particular here in the U.S., are very skeptical of traditional financial institutions. And what's what's interesting is, you know, super open to embracing a Venmo, but pretty cynical when it comes to traditional financial institutions. So we very early on decided that we wanted to build a brand that resonated with our shoppers and with our customers. And what's funny is that Klarna in, in Europe is actually a bank. But when you think about how we position ourselves for our sort of like 8 million customers here in the US, it's almost like an anti-bank, you know, in the way we position ourselves, our brand campaigns, you know, our first ever brand campaign was with Snoop Dogg. He changed his name to Smooth Dog for a month and that was a real viral success for, for us here in the US. Uh, he actually ended up becoming an investor in the company. More recently, we've done partnerships with Lady Gaga, for example. And I think what's key to that is... We're trying to build a brand that resonates with the people who use our brands. And if you look at Klarna, you know, we're, we're this sort of like bright millennial pink. If you look at every other financial institution in the US, they're all blue. And they're all blue because research groups will say blue is a trustworthy brand. But what we're finding is that for young people, that that old, staid, traditional sort of financial look and feel that doesn't resonate. In fact, it in their minds, it's associated with punitive interest rates and predatory lending and, and all of the things that Klarna aspires to be the antithesis of. So I really think that our focus on D2C was much more than just a business decision about broadening our reach. I think it's been a great evolution for the business because it really required us to reflect on who do we want to be as a brand and how do we want to position ourselves we're in the act of becoming carbon neutral. And a big part of that is because that's an expectation of our, our customers and, and the shoppers who use us. So I think it's been a good experience for us because it's helped hone who we want to be as a company. And it's a company that we want the shoppers who use us to, to feel good about and proud to use and, and loyal to. Oh, that's excellent. So I do want to dig deeper into 
these great experiences that Corona has really focused on creating, especially in this current climate, right, where in-person experiences, the traditional pop-up model obviously is basically impossible right now or not very much encouraged. And that has been a really critical driver for brand activation, brand awareness. So you guys have taken it digital or virtual with a few different pop-up experiences and also your partnership with Cosmo for the holiday experience. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into the motivation for these experiences and most of all, whether their results have really measured up to what your expectations were from a strategic standpoint. I mean, let's break down how this all went for you guys. Yeah, sure. So we've done a couple of events recently. So one was our 48 hours sort of smooth room, which was effectively a a virtual pop-up. And most recently, we did a partnership with Cosmopolitan Magazine where we did, we effectively created a two-day shopping holiday called Holiday, H-A-U-L-I-D-A-Y. And what's really interesting is both have been uh, tremendously successful. And and I think that they've been successful for a couple of reasons, right? I think COVID's obviously had a bit to play. People are changing how they shop. Online shopping has, in in many instances, grown as in-store shopping has declined. So there's no question that the changing way in which consumers are shopping just purely because of COVID has influenced the success of these events. But I also think it probably goes broader than that. And I think it's because the consumers who shop with Kalana, they're very focused on shopping digitally. These types of events resonate with them and we get tremendous buying from our retail partners. So you think about that 48-hour smooth sort of virtual pop-up, you know, we had one-of-a-kind pink Fender Stratocaster guitars that you could buy. We had very, you know, limited edition, you know, Adidas sneakers that you could win or you could buy, like a whole heap of just, you know, very bespoke, very aspirational products that were a part of that. And so I think what that reflects is, you know, the buying that we get from our retailers. You know, when we did the the Cosmopolitan two-day sale event, which we really mirrored on some of the large online sales events that you see in Asia. But we had, you know, tremendous buying from Sephora, Finish Line and Adidas. We had Reebok giving, I think it was 40% discounts if you shopped over the weekend. And, you know, just taking that one event, I think we had Cosmopolitan reach out to their 75 million monthly readers. We reached out to our 8 million consumers. All of our brands bought in and promoted the event. I think Klarna, you know, we saw a 3x increase on our transactions volumes over that weekend, which is something that we'd normally see on sort of like a Cyber Monday or a Black Friday. So a really, really successful event for us, very successful for our partners. And and I think probably an indication of the type of event that we're going to see increase here in the US. You know, like I said, these types of events are actually really common in Asia. They do tremendously well over there, things like Singles Days, for example. We wanted to bring something like that, partner with great retailers, great publications like Cosmopolitan. And our audience has really, really embraced it, which is exciting. Yeah. And what I really like about the strategy behind these experiences is this connection to the cultural context of consumers, right? It's interesting because around this time, we would be holidayed out, right? Like we would be really deep into holiday coverage. And because of everything else going on, it's like that that's kind of a few layers deeper into our psyches in a certain respect. So I think creating this experience that's a bit more fun, really brings together all of these key brands that are top of mind for consumers, really makes for a great experience. And I know too that you have a new partnership as well with uh, Animal Crossing, which in and of itself is kind of this cultural phenomenon. So do you think this like intersection of 
culture and context of the consumer and bringing commerce into that is kind of what's really the next stage in marketing relevance. I mean, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that Animal Crossing partnership too and what that kind of looks like because, I mean, and I just look at my social feeds and that's all a lot of people are, are talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it'd be fair to say that we want to be where our customers are. So if you think about the audience that we're engaging with, right, it's it's overwhelmingly a Gen Z audience, overwhelmingly a millennial audience. And when we think about how do we continually add value to those customers, how do we continually create consumer preference and brand loyalty and, you know, a platform that's engaging, a really big part of that is going to be speaking to them on the platforms that they're on, whether that be Instagram or, you know, in the future TikTok or or things like Animal Crossing. It's going to be uh, partnering with brands or individuals that resonate with them. That's extraordinarily key to what we do. And I think the first few forays that, that we've had into that, the Animal Crossing partnership is a really good example of one that's already been tremendously successful. I think it's something that's going to be core to our D2C efforts moving forward. And it's because in part, there's just total alignment between us and those partners, right? Like we're all trying to speak to the same audience. We're all trying to offer those audiences value and engagement. And and I think that just as we want to align with brands and companies that sort of, you know, resonate with who, who we aspire to be. I think one of the reasons we've been so lucky to forge partnerships with people like Lady Gaga, who, who actually don't do a lot of commercial commercial arrangements, is because they also look at Klarna and they look at the way we position ourselves and the company that we aspire to be. And I think that creates a level of comfort on their side in, in a way that might not be the case with a traditional bank. So it's really, really important for us, those types of partnerships. And I think you're going to see even more as we go on, you know, we've got some really exciting ones in the back end of the year around things like gaming, for example. So it's a really big part of the business. Excellent. And you've brought up a few times now, David, where your audience or, or your user base tends to skew more Gen Z, more millennial type users who are already digital natives in a certain respect. I mean, they, they kind of grew up with smart technology, smartphones, and e-commerce is kind of innately embedded into their daily activities. There's not so much of a behavioral change there. But obviously, in this current context, we are seeing significant shifts to e-commerce and digital channels, either to replace existing brand preferences or just to kind of fill gaps. So really, really interesting changes, I think, happening within the retail industry as a whole. But curious if you're noticing any significant shifts in activity or behaviors among your user base in in light of the pandemic. Are you seeing an uptick in Klarna services? Has there been a shift in terms of categories? Because, I mean, we've seen our own research around the categories that are being most hit by the pandemic, but I'm not sure if you have a different experience or have seen different findings. Yeah, it's actually fascinating what we've seen. So we process about a million transactions a day. So you you actually have your sort of finger on the pulse of, of how consumers spent, both here and you know in, in other markets around the world where we're live. And I think a couple of things sort of leap out at me when I think about consumer purchasing behaviour during during the pandemic. And the first is just how variable it has been week to week. So we've seen tremendous spikes in certain categories uh, at different points across the pandemic. So, you know, early on when they announced stay-at-home orders, we entered this phase that we sort of colloquially refer to as stock up and people needed food and they needed all of those basic things that, that people need to get by. And you saw things like pet food, you know, just increase like 75% week on week, tremendous spikes. We then moved into a sort of a phase where 
you know, I describe it as like settling where we saw people start to think about ways to entertain themselves and video games increased 180%. Again, almost week on week, we saw these incredible spikes in uh, certain product types. Anything athletics related has just exploded. You know, running shoes are up 100%, a little over 100% for, for most of our retail partners. And then you saw things like when the stimulus checks would hit, you just saw increases in spending that again were, you'd normally conflate with like the Christmas holiday shopping period where you saw people, you know, all of a sudden get a little bit more money, maybe make purchases that they had been holding off on. So I think what's interesting is you've just seen this extraordinary, almost week-to-week variability in how consumers are spending. And you definitely have, you know, some categories where it's very, very clear that not only are they elevated, that they're going to be elevated for, for the near term. So we see like athleisure is significantly up year on year. We see uh, sleepwear significantly up year on year personal care, anything related to personal care significantly up year on year. So, and, and probably not unsurprising, right? But I do think it's just interesting how how much consumers have changed, not only what they buy, but, you know, where they buy it and how they're paying for it. And I think you, you've also seen some real losers like, um, you know, anything related to the ticketing industry, obviously, are sort of, you know, falling off a cliff, unfortunately. But it's it has been really interesting to, to just watch just how impacted consumer spending has been, not just in the amount of consumer spending, but really important to into the categories that's flowing. Yeah, that's interesting. So a follow-up question to that then is we have had some in-depth conversations, not just around the impact of the pandemic specifically, but regarding looming economic uncertainty, whether that be due to layoffs or furloughs or just because of the economic recessions that's kind of hanging over our head in conjunction to the pandemic. So have there been any internal conversations among, you know, Klarna executives or among partners around the possible impact or ripple effect of this economic uncertainty? Or do you foresee that things will kind of sustain themselves, especially given the space that Klarna plays in and just the overall benefit that you provide to consumers? Yeah, look, it's something we think about, obviously, as all as all business leaders are thinking about at the moment. Nothing is more damaging to business than uncertainty. I think when it comes to Klarna, you know, we've been extraordinarily fortunate through this period in that we're heavily weighted towards online and online sales have proved really robust. So I think, you know, what's happened is that while aggregate spending, aggregate retail spending is down, so much of traditional in-store spending has shifted online that online sales have actually been, in many cases, uh, up based on, you know, prior month or pre-COVID or year on year. So so we've been really fortunate in that regard that, you know, online is such a core component of our business. Online has been relatively robust. And I also think that why we have this, you know, absolute tragedy where you just have so many millions of people who have lost their jobs. Um, you also have uh, a huge number of people who still have their jobs but haven't been able to spend as they normally would spend. So I think it's a bit of a mix. You know, obviously, you know, there's going to be negative repercussions reverberating through the economy because of the pandemic for years. You know, I think a lot of the retail partners that we work with, they don't anticipate that they'll sort of make back the lost gains for many years to come. It's just been taking such a toll on them. But at the same time, I think what we're going to see, particularly coming into the holidays, is that there's going to be this huge pent-up consumer demand where all of those individuals who, you know, retained employment and haven't been able to spend, whether it's on holidays or on going out or shopping in a physical store, whatever it might be, I think you're going to start to see some of that pent-up demand start to flow through the economy as we move into the holiday period. So it's a mixed bag. I, I think, you know, again, we work with so many retailers who've 
obviously faced extraordinary challenges during this period. We consider ourselves very, very fortunate that we've come through it, if nothing else, stronger. And, you know, we really see our role as how can we work with those retail partners to support them as best we can, you know, how do we work with our customers to give them flexibility as best we can, given that we, we've been sort of landed in this fortunate position. Oh, excellent. Yeah, and I know there, there's still so much up in the air. It's very hard to really benchmark or predict what's going to happen. So definitely appreciate your transparency there. And then the notion of flexibility is a significant value add for consumers, regardless of the situation that they're in now. But looking at it through the other end of the spectrum, the possibly more risk-adverse consumers, the folks that are really trying to curb spending altogether, you know, minimize discretionary spending categories specifically. I mean, is there a plan in place or any sort of approach that Klarna takes in order to mitigate any consumer concerns or the risks that they may have in their mind around using these services specifically, right? Because there have been quite a few conversations around the risks versus rewards. So what's your take on that? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. And, you know, I'd start by saying we take our responsibility as a lender very, very seriously. And I think when you, you know, get to the core of what our product, product is and, you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve for, I think a lot of the perceived risks, I think, are mitigated. So step one, what's the core product we have in the US? It gives customers the opportunity to see a $200 product and split it into four interest-free payments of $50 with Kalana. So day one, they pay you know, 25% of the purchase price. They get the product immediately. Two weeks later, another 25%. Four weeks later, another 25%. Six weeks later, another 25%. But at the core of the product is this concept of it being merchant-funded, not consumer-funded. And I think that's really, really important. For the customers who use that product, there's no interest component of that. If the purchase price was $200, that they only pay $200. We actually make our money from the retailer, hence the merchant-funded component of it. And I think that gets to the second part of it, which is, you know, what's the, the historic problem that we're trying to solve for that we're, you know, positioning ourselves as the sort of the opposite of? And it's credit cards. The growth of Kalana, I think, is being driven in very large part by the fact that young people here in the US are overwhelmingly engaging with traditional financial products at, at a lower lower rate. More than half of all young people in the US don't have a credit card. And, you know, that's a much higher rate than, than previous generations. And I think a part of that is because, you know, think about the credit card business model, think about the credit card user experience. It's rack up a bill of $5,000, lose your job or have a financial issue. All of a sudden, you're not paying the full balance back. You're only paying the minimum balance back. Your balance is increasing because you can still spend on it. The component of it that's um, tracking an interest rate is growing every month. That's what the, the credit card industry was built on, that idea of knowing that a certain subset of consumers aren't going to make their payments in full. And I really do feel like we're building a, a model here that's the, the total opposite of that. It's a merchant-funded, consumer-friendly option. And, and it really is a scenario where both the consumer and the merchant win in that model because the easier that our retail partners make it for a consumer to make a transaction with no cost to them, the more our retail partners sell. So I do think it, you know, it is one of those models that works quite well for both parties. The only other thing I would say to it, right, is again, you know, when you think about what's at the core of our model, average transaction uh, through Kalana is about $150. And you break that into four interest-free installments, we're talking sort of $37, 50 every couple of weeks. Again, a, a very, very manageable amount for a customer to pay back. So for us, we feel very comfortable 
making the majority of our money from our retail partners. That's core to our business. We take that responsibility of, of being a lender very, very seriously. And you even just look at this period of COVID, right? But customer needs to push a payment if the customer's going to be late in the payment, if the customer needs financial assistance, you know, we're extraordinarily eager to, to help them in that process because the business model isn't based on customers not paying us back. It isn't based on encouraging a customer to stretch that a little bit further. It's about creating a almost like a cash flow tool or a budgeting tool for, for our customers and making our money from the retailer. Interesting. Yeah, there's some very interesting points there, David. Thank you for going into such detail there. And I guess my follow-up question to that is knowing that your primary user base, you know, younger consumers, Gen Z or millennial, their digital behaviors, you know, their willingness to use new services coupled with the fact that so few of them are using credit cards or don't have as many credit cards, which I think is probably largely due to just the world that they grew up in and the heart of the Great Recession and that economic hardship that they probably saw a lot of people, you know, friends and family kind of navigate. So there's definitely an, an interesting contextual angle there. But kind of taking these two points and melding them together what does that mean for, in Klarna's view, or, or maybe even in, in your view personally around the future of the payment experience specifically? I mean, where do you think this space is going? Because I know I've been covering retail for almost 10 years, and it's been a, a very fascinating shift to see payment be just kind of an add-on at the end. You know, we talked about this earlier, to something that is more integral to the consumer experience and their overall perception of brands, right? I mean, it's kind of being elevated in the consideration set, which I find to be fascinating. So, I mean, what trends are you seeing emerging or where do you think that the future is going when we're looking at the, the payment experience specifically? Yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting, right? Like, but payments can just sound so boring. And, you know, it, it's not that long ago when the biggest questions that somebody, you know, running payment for a large retailer had to decide was, you know, when do we add PayPal or do we accept American Express? And it's interesting when you think about that because it, it has always been such a, probably actually not such a, probably the most important element of that, that consumer purchasing experience, you know, the actual act of just giving someone cash or paying for a product or it's such an important friction point in that journey. But I think in the past it's been sort of overlooked and I think the way people pay for things is fundamentally changing. And I think our business where it's about providing shoppers with flexibility and the ability to sort of like pay in installments, that's actually just one component of how payments is is changing, you know, the evolution of things like Alipay, the evolution of things like contactless payments. You know, there are a whole heap of different components of how payments just more broadly is changing. But but I think all of those components, whether it's contactless payments, adding, you know, things like Alipay, adding things like installment payments, for example, at, at their core, they're, they're all being driven by two major trends, right, which is a push towards personalization and I would say a push towards removing friction in the consumer journey. And when you think about, you know, whether it's the Amazon one-click payment or installment payments, you know, you're trying to solve those two things. How do I make this a more personalized experience for my shoppers? How do I make this a frictionless experience for my shoppers? And I think those two trends are washing through uh, retail more broadly. And it just happens to be that payments is where I think a lot of that is being displayed at the moment. So 
my predictions in 12 months' time, you're not going to have a major retailer in the US who isn't offering some type of an instalment plan. You know, it's just, it is too popular an option for customers. I think in, you know, 24 months' time, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a major retailer who is not offering contactless payments. It's just too attractive an opportunity for a customer. 36 months' time, you know, you're not going to have a, a retailer who's not offering, you know, instant checkout straight off the PDP. So it really does just transform consumer purchasing behavior when you make it easier for them to buy. And I think that's what's driving the this larger trend around payment experience, you know, a more frictionless experience and a more personalized experience. And, and I think all retailers recognize the value in that. Great. Some big predictions there, David. So is it safe to say that this is going to be a big priority for Klarna going into the holiday season? Any teasers you can share as far as your brand partnerships and experiences go? What can we expect from you as we go into the incredibly critical Q4 period? Yeah, look, we've got real momentum, right? If you just look at our business, if you look at like the past few months, we've launched with the North Face, we've launched with Vans, we've launched with Sephora. And if you look at the next six months, we will, for for all intents and purposes, we will launch with a top 100 e-commerce retailer every month for the next six months, including some iconic, you know, department stores, some of the highest profile premium brands in the world. So it's a really exciting time to be a client. And I think um, two things are driving it. And I think this is true of, you know, the pandemic is that there were some trends that were already in play. You know, the shift towards e-commerce was already in play, for example. The drive for retailers to offer instalment payments was, was already in play. I think those trends have just been accelerated by the pandemic. So I think a lot of retailers that had adding Klarna on their roadmap they just brought that forward because all of a sudden converting on their websites was just so important. So we're growing quickly. We, we just hit, we're about to hit 9 million customers, which is really exciting. Just hit more than a million monthly active users in the app. And I think by the end of the year, we'll be talking 12 or 14 million customers here in the US. So it's exciting. Awesome, David. Yeah, very, very exciting stuff indeed. Thank you again so much for taking the time out, talking about Klarna's evolution, where you guys are focusing strategically, and and most of all, some of those really exciting trends and shifts that we're seeing in the payment space. Like you said, easily perceived as very boring and utility-based, but really some exciting innovation happening there. To close out our conversation, let's get a little tactical. Like we talked about earlier, we're getting into Q4 and holiday. I'm sure a lot of folks listening right now are trying to wrap their heads around what could they possibly do to improve the experience for their consumers going into this period, what's still feasible at this point in time, right? So any closing words of advice or or recommendations for those folks listening right now that just want to improve that payment experience and don't know what enhancements to make? (laughs) Yeah, look, I I would obviously recommend that everybody add Klarna, but but in all seriousness, whether it's us or, or another provider, you know, you can't go wrong by giving your customers that additional flexibility of being able to pay for installments. It's extremely important if you have a a millennial audience, extremely important if you have a Gen Z audience, but I'd be hard pressed to find a retailer where I wouldn't think it would add value. But the key thing I would say is like, just think of those, like all retailers following just one big arc, right? And that arc is built on those two premises, increased personalization, reduced friction. So whether you're thinking about your returns process, your payments process, the personalization that you're offering customers in store, you know, always do it through the lens of those two things. Am I increasing, am I either increasing personalization or am I reducing friction or ideally I'm doing both? And, you know, you can't go wrong. And I think if you approach payments through that lens, then adding uh, Klarna makes a lot of sense, but so does adding, you know, Apple Pay and so does adding Alipay. And really then it just becomes a, a conversation about 
which do I do first? And, you know, that's going to be you know something that each retailer is going to need to decide on their own. Awesome, David. Well, thanks again so much for uh, taking the time out and for sharing such great detail and insight into where this space is going. Really appreciate it. No, I think thanks so much for having me. And of course, thanks everyone out there for listening. If you have any feedback on this episode or have a suggestion or an idea for a future episode, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at our touch points. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this series. You'll get alerted through your preferred podcast player whenever new episodes are available. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.